Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. I'm your host, Andrew Brandt. We're produced by Brian Neal, musical producer, my son, Sam Brandt. And of course, we are presented, as always, by DraftKings. Special podcast today. I hosted an event this week with a woman that runs a center, as I do, at Villanova University. Her center is about commercial sexual exploitation, and mine, of course, is about sports and sports law. We co-hosted an event talking about the whole Deshaun Watson situation, obviously from my point of view, and of course from her point of view, in terms of the way sex workers are treated that aren't even sex workers, and she has some interesting observations about this whole Deshaun Watson thing. It was performed, if you will, in Villanova Law School this week, and I thought I'd share it with my audience, my two students, or her top student, my top student, Jacqueline Borelli. She's asking me the questions, so I was able to involve them as well. Before we get to that, I do want to do a rant about Tua. Listen, a lot's happened, a lot's been said, a lot's been written. You saw my tweets, and I understand what's going on with the testing and Mike McDaniel, the coach of the Dolphins, and the NFL people saying that Tua went through all the tests and he passed the tests. But I just wonder, where is the phrase that we use so often when it comes to the brain and head injury and all this? Abundance of caution. Why was Tua playing last night? Why was he back in the game Sunday? I understand there are boxes you can now check, at least that's what everyone's saying. He passed this test, he passed this test. He was fine, he was joking on the plane. He has movement. I get it. But look at what he was. Look at what happened on Sunday. That's just six days ago. Five days ago. When he's wobbly. Now, wobbly means something's wrong. Not just, He didn't have a, maybe he does have a back injury. But that wobbly was not caused by a back injury or a foot injury. He didn't know where he was. Teammates had to help him get his bearings. Uh, trainers had to come out and help him get his bearings. Yet, lo and behold, there he is. And there he is last night. And yes, can you make a causal rea- uh, relation between what happened Sunday and last night? I don't know. But all the data says you're more susceptible to a concussion after a first one and more susceptible to more severe concussions after one, especially so close in timing. There's an NFL, NFLPA investigation about Tua. I, just the way I think is, why is he playing during the investigation? Like, they're determining whether he should be able to play after what happened Sunday, yet he's playing after Sunday only four days later. Again, I'm someone that thought about raising this in the media. I did not. Chris Nowinski, the concussion expert, did. And it's out there now. And now everyone's saying <laughs> So now they admit he had a concussion. Okay. They're still not saying he had a concussion last week. So this all continues. And I know everyone's, again, from the league and the Dolphins' point of view, saying, hey, he passed the test. But really? I mean, people have eyes. People can see. I don't know. I know that's not a medical evaluation. But someone stumbling on the field is not all right. Someone who hits their head with force against the back of his helmet. That's a sloshing of the brain. That's a concussion. Again, I'm not a doctor. I've dealt with this a long time. And one other thing, when we talk about 
people that came to me on Twitter, I get it fair. What about you, Andrew? You were with Brett Favre all those years. It seemed like he took a lot of concussions. You just, well, yes. And I admit to concerns about that. I admit that maybe we didn't serve him the best we could, but it was a different era. It was before concussion awareness. It was before concussion lawsuits. It was before concussion protocols. It was before any of that. It's a different time, a different place right now. Of course, anything like that. Brett would not be able to continue in a lot of games today, but he was back then. So again, I hear things like minor concussion. Minor concussion is like partially pregnant. There is no minor concussion. I have personal history of this with my family. Um, severe concussion of my son. It was a tough situation. So this is what we're dealing with. I think Tua should sit out while this investigation goes on. We will see if he does or not. Okay, on to this event that I want to share with you, a deep dive into moral, ethical, legal considerations about the whole Deshaun Watson situation, presented by me and my student and Shay Rhodes, professor at Villanova Law, along with me, who runs the Center for Commercial Sexual Exploitation. Without further ado, here's the presentation. So I just want to jump back to uh, the characterization of this conduct as nonviolent. Uh, Professor Rhodes, do you have thoughts on that characterization of this conduct? I have so many thoughts about so many things in this case. Um, first, I want to say thank you to Kim and the alumni office for including me in this conversation and to Rachel and Jacqueline to you know, moderating us. I think our students here at Villanova Law are exceptional, and I am thrilled to be part of educating the future lawyers. I want to start, before I answer that question, Rachel, by quoting from Tony Porter. Um, I think he is phenomenal. He's an author, an educator, he's an activist, and he's working as the CEO of an organization called A Call to Men. And this really resonates with me. He says, the large majority of men in our society are nonviolent. We believe that it's the responsibility of those men to challenge the minority of men who are violent while raising a generation of healthy and respectful boys who also promote nonviolence. And I believe that with my whole heart. Right, The majority of men that I know, the boys that are being raised in this world are nonviolent, and it is incumbent upon them to call out instances. We'll just refer to them sort of globally as sexual misconduct. It could be anything from inappropriate word choices and phrases and things said to just actual violence, like rape. So what do I think of... Judge Robinson's comment of referring to his actions in this case as being nonviolent. Well, I think it's just probably a lack of education of what violence is. You have physical violence, and this is what I think she was, you know, sort of hanging her hat on. Physical violence. And when it comes to instances of sexual violence, that becomes, you know, leading to injuries something that an individual would have to go to an emergency room for, 
where there might be scarring or bruising or someone might need stitches. And the reality, at least for me, and you know, having spent a decade as a prosecutor and now working as a decade in you know, the world of anti-trafficking and exploitation where individuals have exited prostitution, the majority of the violence is something that none of us can see. It's the violence that's happened inside. It's the trauma that is subjective. Every single person in this room, out there on Zoom in this world, is carrying around a backpack. We all have a trauma backpack. And for these particular women to have been told that the trauma they experienced was nonviolent because it didn't result in a physical injury needing medical attention is just lack of education on what trauma is and how, again, these women's trauma backpacks are really, really full, and they're going to have to carry that around with them forever. I think it was uneducated and, in my opinion, really a slap in the face to the victims in this case. I think one of the main questions that a lot of people have regarding this case is, with so many victims, why did some of them wait to come forward or this chain reaction of one victim coming forward and then more coming forward as a result of that? In your experience, why do women wait to come forward? And is that something that is common? Sure. I think all of you can also tell that I'm a former prosecutor and I prepared my case here. Um, the majority of women don't come forward for many reasons. And RAIN, which is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, keeps statistics on this. And there's a, you know, of the cases that are not reported, and we say to police, right, because it's to law enforcement, 20% um, feared retaliation. And I think that's a really big reason why women don't come forward. I think there's also shame, self-blame, um, societal perception. 8% um, who didn't report believed it was not important enough to report. 2% didn't believe the police could do anything to help. And 30% gave a whole, just no reason. They chose to report for one reason or another and just didn't choose to give a particular reason. But I really think that fear of retaliation is evident in this particular case. And I know that Andrew has had his fair share of trolls coming after him on social media as well. I'm going to leave this one here because I think that is a, a question that Rachel might ask me in a little while. But I think that the fear of retaliation and not coming forward is borne out by what we have just seen. And these are just snippets. I went down a rabbit hole one night. I wish I hadn't. I did. But again, these are just snippets of what society thinks of the women who came forward. And I also want to be clear. There are 66 identified women. There have been 24 lawsuits against Deshaun Watson. 23 of them have settled. 30 cases were settled 
by the Texans. Six women's cases were settled before a complaint ever even hit a docket. So that's six additional women beyond the original 24. The one woman, her name's Lauren, and she's public, who has decided not to settle at this point has said, I don't want to settle because there are no consequences. There's no acknowledgement that anything happened and there is no guarantee that something like this isn't going to happen in the future. And the demographics of the women that we know are 15 of them were black women, four of them were white women, and three of them are Hispanic. So we know Lauren, who I just spoke of, who won't settle her case for the reasons I stated, she's white. The only other victim who has publicly come forward and identified herself, her name is Ashley. She's Hispanic. Both of those women were licensed massage therapists and both are no longer working in their chosen profession. Speaking of the societal reaction that we see in these tweets and on social media, a lot of them have been referring to the victims as prostitutes or sex workers and this idea that happy endings are not illegal um, legally. Is any of that correct? So happy endings are not illegal, let's be clear, unless you pay for them. And then they are illegal in all 50 states, yes, including the state of Nevada. But purchasing sex is illegal in the state of Texas and in September of 2021, it became a felony in the state of Texas to buy sex, even on a first offense. But let's talk about word choice. I think as lawyers and future lawyers, the words that we use matter and are really important. So yes, prostitution is a crime, the sale of sex is a crime, but think about that word prostitute. It's as though it's othering an individual. She's not worthy or he's not worthy because she's just a prostitute and she doesn't matter. And here's some proof right here, again, gathered off of social media. And you can say it's part of the retaliation, but just that someone who might be in prostitution or selling sex doesn't matter. And while you read these, um, you know, I talk a lot about prostitution and buying sex and sex trafficking and exploitation in my professional life. And for those of you who know me, you will know that I rarely ever use the term John, right? Sort of like a John Doe an anonymous person who purchases sex. Again, words matter. And I refer to individuals who buy sex as sex buyers. So again, women are primarily impacted in the sex trade worldwide. And that word prostitute is, um, has a really negative and shameful connotation that goes along with it. Professor Brandt talked a lot about um Deshaun Watson's pattern of behavior. Is the way that Deshaun Watson sought out these women common for perpetrators of sexual exploitation? Well, 
You know, I think that's a layered question, Rachel. Um, first and foremost, I had the pleasure of serving at the request of Governor Wolf for a year on our state board of massage therapy. I served out the term of an individual who had to step down. And I can tell you that during that time I was on the state board, the majority of individuals who are licensed are women who are just small business owners. And that's something else that I think the public really needs to be aware of. Yes, there are illicit massage businesses. Yes, happy endings came to be a phrase associated with illicit massage businesses. But the majority of people who work in massage chose that as a healing profession, and they want to help others heal. Deshaun Watson had, you know, a million amenities provided to him by the Texans and throughout his career, including massage therapists on staff by his teams. So I would suggest that not only was he using this ruse of needing massage and being predatory, but this had absolutely nothing to do with sex in the first place. It has to do with power and control. And he was deliberately choosing women of color who were either you know, on their way to being licensed or not licensed, many were licensed, and saying, I'm a big believer in promoting, you know, black-owned businesses. And there's such a huge power imbalance, right, between perpetrators and victims that is so evident in this case. And again, if they're associated with this term prostitute, which I don't believe any of these women were whatsoever, there's also this connotation that, well, she's not worthy of belief. So when one woman comes forward and says, hey, I was just trying to do my job, and I was doing so under the trickery, because let's be clear, he tricked them, that he would help promote their businesses. One woman has the courage to come forward. It is. It doesn't shock me that additional women came forward as well. Just a follow-up there. And by the way, I need to say a word for CLE. Uh, football. He stole my word. I'll give you another one. Uh, I want to follow up what Shay said, what Rachel was asking about these massages. Listen, there's no doubt here what was going on, and I, I don't know what kind of rationalization was going on from Watson's side in all of this because having worked at a team for 10 years we had massage therapists either at the employ of the team or ones that we highly recommended for players to use having been around players for 30 years and representing them there's usually one or two massage therapists and or chiropractor and or acupuncture, whatever it may be, that players rely on. And very important to have these people around them. Uh, as Shay said, the Texans are no different. They had in-house massage therapists. They had, if not, people that they highly recommend their players use. And Deshaun Watson knows teammates that could have recommended 
Again, it's a different kind of, because these guys are so big and so muscular, it does take maybe a different type of massage therapist. And they are on staff or easily found. That's why this was so unique. Not only is he soliciting dozens of strangers through Instagram, but obviously he has a pattern of behavior where he shows up with a towel that's not their towel, and he asks for work on his private parts. All these kind of things are just over and over again found to be his pattern of behavior. So it was so different. I think in the process, what the union and Watson's attorneys tried to do was say to the NFL or say to the judge, the retired judge, hey, we're not excusing what he did, but hey, your owners, NFL, have been caught in some compromising positions and they have not been disciplined at all. Referring to the Patriots owner who was caught in a similar situation once in Florida. Referring to the Washington Commander's owner who's presided over a toxic workplace for decades. Referring to the Cowboys owner who's had some issues. Referring to whatever it may be. So again, it almost seems like this defense, because a lot of people are asking, like, what is he saying in this hearing? Like, he did try to say that he was just, you know, getting massage, and that didn't fly. Um, but again, these are, these are the kind of defenses they put up. But anyone who knows sports knows that, you know, high-performance elite athletes don't seek out their body work on Instagram, with a lot of women that weren't even licensed. This whole situation raises a lot of moral and ethical issues, so I'll throw this question out to both of you. Um, to what extent should lawyers and attorneys direct the moral policies of the organizations that they represent? So, you know, there isn't an ethical rule that applies that you have to direct, as lawyers, right, that we have to direct the policies of, of organizations that you know lawyers do represent as general counsel, I think that there is a real opportunity to be proactive in assisting and advising clients like an NFL or the teams on what they are going to stand for and what they are going to tolerate among the players, just like any business, right? What are we as a society going to tolerate from people who work in companies that we own. And in this, you know, in the area that I work in, there's a big push now to get businesses and law firms to sign on to employee policies that if you are caught buying sex on company time, you will no longer be our employee. And what does company time mean, right? You're thinking about times when you know, as an attorney, I travel a lot for work, and I expense my hotel room. So if a lawyer is working for a large law firm and he's expensing the hotel room when he flew into Chicago to depose clients or, you know, an opposing party in a, in a lawsuit, and the client is picking up that bill, what does that say if he decides to purchase sex again on time that is off the clock? He's not still in the deposition, but he's still there. 
And so I think, again, as, you know, businesses involved in good business practices and wanting to really send a message to employees about what we should and should not tolerate as society, it sends a, it sends a really big message. And I think there's a way that, you know, lawyers can advise their clients. Clients don't always take our advice, right? But, you know, there's a way to get out ahead of things and be proactive in stopping behavior before it ever even starts, like purchasing sex. I think there's a real, you know, when we talk about the world of sports, we talk about this among my students, a lot of here in my, from my class, is where's the line we want to draw between discipline on the field, on the court, on the diamond, on the ice, versus off. And I know there are people out there, because they've come and talked to me about it, where they say, listen, I don't care. I just want to see them play. They're entertainment. Whatever they do in their off time is their business. And I think that's a problem because we live in a society that pays an extraordinary amount of attention to these athletes, and our children do. And this is something where behavior becomes a beacon, especially in a league like the NFL, where they average 15 million viewers every game. This is something that every team, every league, every agent, every, every organization in all sports goes through. Where is the dividing line between talent and character? Of course, if Deshaun Watson was an average player, we wouldn't be having this CLE. We wouldn't be talking about him. He would have been released. He would never play again. But now we have an extraordinary talent who did this. And yes, I talked about the Panthers and the Saints and the Falcons and, of course, the Browns, but there's 28 other teams that wanted no part of them, no matter the talent. And I think Shay just said something really important. What are your principles? What do you stand for? And we saw some, you saw some of the images of Brown's fans. Listen, I get it. Fandom is a powerful drug. It really is. We know that. We're Eagles fans, right? I mean, but where do you stand? Where do you draw the line? Where do you want to put your organization? I went through many conversations in my time with the Packers about bringing in players with rap sheets with problems in the past. And it becomes a discussion. Like, we know we're not here teaching seventh grade boys choir, but what do we do? What do we do with a player that's extremely talented but has character issues, that has a rap sheet, that's done bad things? Again, 20-something teams would not touch Deshaun Watson, who's an extraordinary talent. They have principles that kept them away from him. But all he needed was one, and he got four, and he's decided on Cleveland. So these are extraordinary decisions, and this is, goes beyond sports, as everyone here knows. There's greater, greater tolerance for greater talent. See that in business, see that in law, see that in medicine, see that all over the world. You will tolerate more in behavior if there's extraordinary talent. You guys both talked about the quantity of women who accused Watson of sexual assault, but only four women testified. What are both of your explanations for this discrepancy? I kind of queried about that to the people involved as much as they would tell me, and I think it was, to some extent, from the league point of view, a respect for the process of Judge Robinson not to be there for two weeks. Uh, 
there was, as I said, a three-day hearing, and I believe there were four or five women chosen, and I think the decision was made, these are the most egregious cases, rather than parade 20-something women through that hearing. So they chose what they thought were the most egregious cases, uh, most egregious in terms of details, most egregious in terms of predatory actions by Watson. And yeah, you can look back and say, did they present the entire picture? I'm not sure. If they chose the ones that were the most uh, illustrative of, of predatory behavior, that was their decision. So again, I think it's a slap in the face to the victims. If they wanted to testify, they should have been heard. Um, I know that there are a lot of people out there in the world who talk about, oh, I want to be the voice for the voiceless. Everyone has a voice. Sometimes they just don't have a platform from which to be heard. And I think if given an opportunity for those of us like lawyers who have privilege, right, we have an education to give our clients who don't have the ability to project what it is that they want to say, that we should allow them the opportunity to say so. But I'm going to, again, back to my, I prepped my case for today. The attorney, I forget his first name, Busby, who represents the victims in the civil litigation, said this about the NFL investigation. And this is a quote. From the beginning, when the first questions asked by the NFL investigators of our clients was, what were you wearing? That gave us a lot of pause. Some of the interviews spent most of the time on a deep dive of the victim and little to no questions about the conduct that was being alleged. In some cases, it was our view when the questioners weren't being aggressive and hostile, they really weren't that interested in what was being said or what actually happened. So I take a couple of things away from this. Number one, wow, back to the classic victim shaming, victim blaming that I was hoping the Me Too movement over the last few years would really rectify and correct, but obviously not. Um, I would say, having been a prosecutor, that I would expect this type of nonsense from a showboat criminal defense attorney, um, who I love and many of my friends. But first and foremost, these investigators weren't trauma-informed. And that's a huge problem. The NFL chose their investigators. And they clearly chose investigators to ask questions in a hostile fashion because they weren't trauma-informed. Something that's really important to me as someone who is educating the future lawyers of you know, the world here, they must leave this building with some sense of what it is to be trauma-informed in their provision of legal services. And I don't care if their client is a corporation or a rape victim. I think it's incumbent upon us as a legal community to understand trauma in the brain because the practice of law is a human service. Someone's representing, a human being is representing that corporation or the NFL, right? It's still a person. 
And I think it was really important, or it should be important in the future, for investigators of cases with allegations like this to not just be able to use, yes, I'm trauma-informed properly in a sentence, but to actually understand the five core values of what trauma-informed care really are and fold them into their provision of legal services. So, you know, that could have been an, another reason why these women didn't want to, to talk because they'd already been, for lack of a better way of saying it, beat up by these investigators and they didn't want to go through it again. Hope you enjoyed that, and that'll do it for this week's edition of The Business of Sports with Andrew Brand. I really want you to uh, keep getting my newsletter. I'm getting into a lot of these topics. I'm doing them on Reels and Insta at Andrew Brandt to uh, the newsletter, andrew-brandt.com, and Twitter, Andrew Brandt. And, of course, I hope you enjoy this podcast. Give it a good rating if you would. Share it with a friend, and you can always support it, andrew-brandt-point on Venmo. Have a great week, everyone. I'll see you next week on the Business of Sports with Andrew Grant. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.